The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. God, I loved it. I'll send you a copy. Bam! Bitch went down. Welcome to Horror Queers, where we watch gay movies and talk about gay shit in them. Yay! <laughs> Yay! Yeah, no, I like that introduction a lot better than what we've done in the past couple episodes. It's a lot less formal. Yeah, it works It works for the writing. I don't know that it's necessary for the podcast, so. Yeah, no, for sure. I agree. Uh, so, Joe, what are we talking about this week? We are talking about Jennifer's body. And I have the cheat sheet all ready to go, courtesy of you. <laughs> yes. Do you want to do the honors this week? Absolutely. Okay. okay. So Jennifer's Body is uh, from 2009. It is 20th Century Fox, directed by Karen Kusama, written by Diablo Cody, coming off of her breakout hit Juno. Jason Reitman's in the mix somewhere, I think, as an executive producer, but he's not super important. So let's move on. Yeah. And we've got some pretty heavy hitters in the lead roles. We've got Megan Fox as the titular Jennifer. We've got Amanda Seyfried. I always mispronounce her last name. I think it's Seyfried. I always say Seyfried. You had a you put a G in her name somewhere. I don't know where that came from. But um, I, when I was watching the bonus features, um, Jason Reitman referred to her as a uh, Seyfried. Okay, we will go with Seyfried. Yeah. Like it's spelled. Yes. <laughs> so Amanda Seyfried. <laughs> <laughs> We're just going to say Amanda yes. uh, as Needy, the best friend, and Adam Brody as the devilish lead singer of Low Shoulder, mm-hmm. Kyle Gellner as a victim, yeah. Incideris <laughs> as Needy's mom. Who has like one scene. Yeah. Oh, and I missed uh, Johnny Simmons as Needy's boyfriend, but I feel like people will not recognize his name. He's one of those actors where you see it. He's almost a character actor. You, you recognize is. him when you see him. I, I always I, I always put him in with Scott Pilgrim. Well, Scott Pilgrim and this movie. You also forgot J.K. Simmons. No relation, I don't think, to Johnny, but um, as the high school teacher. Yes, who I had completely forgotten was in this movie until I rewatched it for this He's episode. He's so funny in this movie. It just reminds me of how many weird quirks are crammed into this movie. The fact that he has a, a missing hand and he's got a hook instead. For no reason. Why? For absolutely no reason. No, well, and I, I, we'll get to it, but I, I do think that the movie, while I, I do like it a lot, there was a lot crammed into the movie, and I, I can see why some people wouldn't think it all meshed well together, because it's definitely kind of a hodgepodge of a lot of different ideas and concepts and tones, especially. And it really depends on the viewer as to whether or not, like, how effective all of this mixture is. It's true. It is a cauldron of... About a thousand ingredients. Yeah. So wrapping some of this stuff up. So your stat sheet honestly shocked me when you sent it over. 44% Rotten Tomato score, 
34% from audience. Well, and, and the 44% score on Tomatoes is higher now because of some recent reviews that have been posted. I think it was in the 30s originally, like in 2009 when it came out. Jeez. Yeah, people did not get this movie. No, not not at all. Like all of the all of the scores are either average or below average. Mm-hmm. Shockingly bad. So it's interesting to to now do this movie almost ten years later, and after, as we discussed in that very first episode, the speed dating episode. This film is essentially experiencing a resurrection. This was last year's big, I can't believe that people don't like this movie or that we don't talk about it enough movie for Halloween. Right. No, absolutely. Um, and I, I did a little bit of research. I found one article that I, I thought was really uh, fascinating as to why it is more popular now um, or like, you know, more highly regarded now than it was back in 2009. And it's really, first of all, it makes me feel old because I saw this in theaters and it does not feel like it was nine years ago. It's really kind of bizarre. Not at all. Yeah. And also to to realize that, you know, when this came out, Amanda Seyfried had only done, she was known for Mean Girls and Mamma Mia had come out the year before and she was on Big Love. Like this was like right around like the, like when she was really kind of becoming a household name. Megan Fox had really only done uh, the, the first two Transformers movies. And I think much like this movie, the public consensus on Megan Fox is more positive. I don't think it's super positive. I've always liked Megan Fox, but at the time in 2009, like, I know a lot of women hated her. They didn't think that, like, it was like, you know, she's a sexy woman who can't act. Which, a lot of the reviews commented on how she's not a good actress in this movie. And I have a big bone to pick with those people because I think she's really good in this movie. Yeah, it's interesting. I remember I almost didn't go to see this movie because I actively did not like Megan Fox. Why? And the, honestly, Michael Bay and the Transformers movies. Mm-hmm. Because those movies so misuse her yeah. that I was under the impression she was a terrible actress. So I knew going in, it was Diablo Cody. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you compare... The people who are acting in Juno, you know, Ellen Page can handle Diablo Cody language, but the way that the trailers were cut, the way that the marketing was sold, and then Megan Fox's acting ability, I'm putting that in air quotes, from Transformers, I was like, I don't think this is a good combination. So I didn't want to see it. I saw it for Diablo Cody because I like Juno that much. Yeah, well, and and we'll get into the marketing because I'm on the commentary, Karin Kusama and Diablo Cody, like, comment on how they would have done the marketing differently but yeah so we'll, we'll get to that but uh yeah so and i i mean i agree you know, I, I haven't seen megan fox in anything that i've been like oh like this is clearly like a super strong actress she's never been given a role i, I don't to my knowledge i don't think that's been really a heavy hitting acting role but this particular role plays to a lot of like the public perception of her so when people are like oh she's not good in this movie i'm like but she's literally like playing the role that people think she is in real life mm-hmm. and and that, she's hitting it out of the park so obviously yes. she's doing it well and th- th- that's also why i thought casting her was kind of a bit of genius because it was kind of allowing her to make fun of herself which i'm a big fan of when actors can do that or are willing to do that so this was your pick for lack of mm-hmm. a better term like you talked about how you were really excited to revisit this film for the podcast so what what is it about this film that you were excited to revisit or that you wanted to talk about? I I really just think that studying reception and perception of a film over time is really fascinating because I myself did not, was not a big fan of this movie when I saw it in theaters. I mean, like, you know, you saw the box office numbers, like this movie was made for $16 million and it opened at number five 
with uh, $6.9 million, and it grossed 16.2 domestically. So it barely broke even on a production budget. Which means it lost a shit ton of money. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because, I mean, the, I remember the marketing was pretty all over the place for this movie. I mean, meaning it was everywhere, but it was sat- it sat- nah, saturated. It saturated the market. Oh, it shatterated the market. <laughs> it, it really did. And when, I didn't know anyone who was excited to see this movie. I, I was very excited because, as we've discussed, I have a thing for, like, good girls who, like, go bad or just cuss a lot in movies. And when I was going to see it, it it's so funny because – I'll just jump ahead a little bit here, but, like, this movie was sold as a – titillating like masturbatory fantasy for boys which is interesting considering that it was directed by a woman and written by a woman but clearly the marketing was a bunch of men (laughs) no you're absolutely right so the marketing was effectively sold to young boys so let's let's tackle the poster first so the poster the the prominently featured poster is jennifer reclining in a schoolgirl outfit on a Mm -hmm. desk with like a shitty digitally imposed hand coming out like she's in elementary school and you've got a desk that opens to like reveal your notebook or something in it and you know it's got some like eh, quippy play about like high school high school girls are hell or high school is hell and then it's got the title of the movie written on the chalkboard in the background and it's just like hell yeah or something right yes yeah i I remember that well and Again, so there were, like, two shots in the movie where, um, during the commentary, Karn Kusama was like, see, that would have been my poster. One of them was, uh, when Jennifer, oh, it's, it's during the flashback sequence where Jennifer is, like, sh- I think saying what happened to her, but there's a shot where she walks in front of Needy's house and it's, the camera is positioned at her feet and it's just her legs and the house is in front of her. And mm-hmm. that's one shot that Karn Kusama said she would have used because it was an homage to a director of some sort. Well, it's like every horror movie where it's got like the killer's legs in front of victims mm-hmm. or a house. It's very like last house on the left, you know, slumber party massacre, all that kind of stuff. And the other one was, um, it was when in the very beginning when Jennifer, after she's been possessed and she goes to Needy's house and, you know, there's the Boston market reference, which is one of the funniest things in the movie for me. And it's when she corners Needy and she goes, are you scared? But then she like, slaps her hand on a picture of needy and leaves a bloody handprint mm-hmm. and that that was a uh, car kusama was like i would have loved it if that that bloody handprint on that photo of amanda seyfried was the, the poster for this movie <laughs> yeah that would have been pretty good too i thought it was kind of funny but yeah and and going back to kind of like how it was titillating these teenage boys it was kind of funny because even though i'm gay as a gay man i was kind of going to this movie for that like they the, the the advertising pushed the um the lesbian kiss between them a lot and i was like oh my god like these two famous actresses are gonna like kiss each other that's so cool and again i'm not turned on by it it fascinates me and i remember being disappointed because this movie while there are gory scenes in it it's not a gory movie no the language isn't super i mean they say fuck a couple of times but it's not crazy and there's not, like, a lot of sex in it. I mean, actually, well, no, there is a pretty intense, not intense, but there is a sex scene, but it's not, like... It's not hot. No, no, it, it's a super awkward, but but I like that. Like, watching it now, I kind of respect that scene a lot more of how it portrays teenage sex. I would argue that the film has sexuality in it, but it doesn't yeah. have a lot of sex in it. Which, again, though, that's what the movie was selling. And the the first shot of the trailer is her swimming naked in that body of water. And I think, I mean, there's no, there's no nudity in this movie, but I'm fairly certain Megan Fox had a no nudity clause, which is also, I mean, I don't think either way, though, that Karin Kusama would have wanted to shoot nudity in this movie on the woman anyway. Although there is that bit after Amanda Seyfried and um, 
Johnny Simmons have sex, where she sits up after, you know, she freaks out, and she's holding the sheets over her boobs, and that always bothers me in movies, because I'm like, I, I mean, I don't know for certain, but I'm assuming women don't just do that. <laughs> When when they're in bed. Oh, you mean when you when you sleep in bed with your husband, you don't have like strategically positioned uh, covers so that your your junk is never available, or maybe like your your nipples are not visible. Exactly, and that was the thing in Fatal Attraction too, where I I mean, total sidebar, but there's a shot of Glenn Close in the bed, and she told the director like, I can't have this sheet over my boobs. No one does this. And so that's where I'm basing that entire assessment on. <laughs> oh, yeah. And going back into the 50s with TV where they had weird L-shaped <laughs> sheets so that they covered the woman's chest, but they only covered the man's oh, that's uh, so waist. weird. That's so weird. <laughs> You're just like, this is stupid. But yes, it's a it's a morality thing. Yeah. Which doesn't make sense in movies unless you're going with a G rating. But. Right. And I mean, suspend disbelief, whatever you want. I mean, it's, it's a minor issue, but it does always bother me. But I mean, I'm sure at the time Amanda Seyfried was not into like showing her tits. I mean, actually, I don't even think she's done. No, she has. She she has done nudity. And it was right after this movie when she was in Chloe with Julianne Moore, another Ooh. lesbian movie. And she definitely and I totally went to that movie to go see Amanda Seyfried's tits. <laughs> You're uh, so weird. <laughs> I know, I know, but she shows them. But I, I don't know why it fascinates me. But um, but yeah. So, did you see this movie in theaters? So I did see this movie in theaters. I as I went as I mentioned because of Diablo Cody. I did not like this movie when I mm. first saw it. I I felt that the the language that I had liked so much in Juno didn't lend itself very well to this movie, which is mm. surprising in hindsight because watching it now, I was like. Oh, yeah, the language is appropriately catty, but also witty for a high school set film that's written by a very acerbic writer. Mm -hmm. So 2009 me, what the fuck? But I think the other thing is that like you, I was I felt very misled by the advertising. So I honestly did think that it was going to be I don't know, just like a lot more envelope pushing. And then I went to see it and I was like, well, this is just kind of like a possessed girl. And yeah. It didn't, you know, the fact that low shoulder kind of gets away without being punished. Obviously, there's the insinuation at the end of the movie that they will get their comeuppance. And of course, over the credits, you you actually get to see it. But it's not in that satisfying way. Like, I, I wanted to see the two of them go after low shoulder and like murder these men. And that doesn't happen. Yeah. Well, and also the the, the credit sequence, um, the in credit sequence where it shows like in photographs what happens to them wasn't in the original cut that was after test screenings they oh, added really? that mm, yeah okay. which kind of goes to the movie that was like you know obviously yeah this movie is not what a lot of people wanted it to be or thought it was going to be but by originally not including that sequence it kind of shows it it's never it's not even about that i mean there is kind of like a rape revenge narrative to this movie but it's definitely more about these two girls and their relationship and this toxic codependent friendship slash romance they have. And the boys are such a, such an afterthought. I mean, it, I mean that as a compliment, not as in the boys are underwritten. I mean, most of them- not important. Yeah, they're not important because Chip is actually a very likable character, uh, the Johnny Simmons character, but he's also played, it, he's written and portrayed in a role that's typically- reserve for uh the the girlfriend the the female role of a movie yeah he's there to support needy and occasionally become a problem for the narrative in terms that he needs to be rescued or yeah exactly and going back to what you said about the dialogue i i do remember the dialogue stuck out like a sore thumb to me when i saw it originally and 
a lot of the reviews commented on that and how they, they I think they said like uh, these two actresses do not know how to speak this dialogue or maybe Diablo Cody is just not writing good dialogue and watching it now it flows a lot better for me the dialogue doesn't stick out like it did and maybe it was because it was like that Juno was like the thing that everyone was talking about at the time because Juno was 07 I think so this is two years later and I don't know I mean I don't know why it works better for me now than it did back then but it just works yeah i don't know if i thought that juno was a one-off and that the rest of diablo cody's films would not take that same approach Mm -hmm. i'm not exactly sure why i thought that either but i remember going in and, and thinking that it sounded a bit like word salad like there were too many words and the actresses were having difficulty with it Mm -hmm. i do sometimes still feel that way a little bit about amanda i think that megan fox handles her dialogue perfectly yeah and that i I think is again that testament to the fact that she's leaning into the role that people associate with her and she's just kind of like well in a way like her character she's just like biting into it and ripping it off like you can tell she's having a ball with this role she is well and that's the thing too because i was watching some of the behind the scenes stuff and i mean she's doing like all the gore stuff like the the makeup the prosthetics like she's in it and the pool scene especially like both actresses and johnny simmons are like they're all having fun and it looks like people are having fun making this movie. And I think that really that's important to come across when you're watching anything. I mean, you know, a movie like this, I guess, like, you know, you're not going to watch like Schindler's List and be like, oh, these people had a lot of fun watching uh, acting in this movie. (laughs) No, it's it's the kind of movie. It's a horror comedy. I would argue with. Well, no, maybe it is like maybe it's 50 50. I was going to say, no, it's a bit more horror than comedy. But no, I really think it is kind of 50 50 like. You're meant to be laughing at a lot of this, and the movie knows it, and they're playing into it. But that's the thing, though. So, and again, I'm going back into at the time reception, but a lot of the complaints were this is a horror comedy, but it's neither scary enough nor funny enough to be successful. And granted, I don't really think the movie is very scary, although I there are sequences that I think are scary. Like, I, I love the sequence when Jennifer goes to Needy's house in the beginning, and she does that creepy, bloody smile which is mm. even when she pukes on the floor and the and the puke has like spikes to it. Yes, roadkill with sewing needles. Yes. Um is how she describes it. Well, and like and that's the thing too cuz like there isn't a lot of CGI in this movie, but that vomit is CGI and as is the monster face on Megan Fox, which uh Greg Nicotero, famous, you know, Dawn of the Dead can be effects group they were originally going to do all prosthetics and then because they were going through a bunch of different ideas for what the demon face was going to look like and then they decided to mix it with some prosthetic some visual effect and i would argue that the cgi of uh, her face doesn't always look the best no it's not convincing at all no always but, go always go practical people practical to the max i know <laughs> but i mean again there's such a little focus on the demon stuff that i mean sorry the actual like when you see her in demon mode that it doesn't bother me that much whereas in 2009 when i was going to see it like i wanted that demon stuff so when there was a lack of it because again this movie focuses more on the relationship than it does the actual demonic possession mm-hmm. that again i was just kind of let down because it wasn't what i wanted it to be and now watching it knowing what it is i can appreciate it a lot more yeah that's fair Okay, so why are we talking about this movie? I mean, apart from the fact that we both enjoy it and we feel like it's having a, a renaissance, but why well, are we doing it for this particular podcast? Well, no, I mean, I, I think we're doing it. Well, yeah, I mean, like the renaissance is very important. Um, I'm always a proponent for taking a film that I love and promoting it. But also, I mean, you have your lesbian undertones under it. I mean, I, I want undertones. like They're there. Um, mm-hmm. There's 
definitely a romance. It's not like, oh, these are two girls experimenting. There is a romance between these girls in this movie. And Karan Kusama and Diablo Cody confirm that in the commentary. But also just kind of this sex-positive attitude that the movie has. I think that's really important. And, and it definitely wasn't embraced at the time. But something that's kind of becoming more and more common. And also, just that we have a horror film made by women starring women about women especially now which again is why it's becoming more highly regarded is because of this you know hashtag me too movement but just it's important to have that and i think that's why it's important to talk about and also how that perspective like how would this movie look if it was directed by a man like what would be different about this movie and i think that's a really important thing to think about when you're watching it so do you have specific examples of that final piece like things that you think karen kusama does well, I think I think it's just the lack of titillation. Um, specifically, even in the um, the scene, the lesbian scene. I mean, I'll just call it that, where they make out. There again, at the time, people were like, "Oh, this is a titillating. It's all exploitation. It's just about like to to get these teen boys to masturbate to Megan Fox and Amanda Seyfried." And I know, but but it's not though. And like the way that it was received that way at the time. But honestly, looking at it, you can see that it's not. I mean, it's titillating, but it's not exploitative. And it's kind of a, a a sad, interesting facet of these girls' relationships. And we'll kind of get into it too more about how these are quote-unquote friends, but they constantly compete with each other. And even Jennifer, who is this amazingly gorgeous hot girl, but is very insecure. And I think Megan Fox handles all that very well, too, especially in the end when Needy calls her insecure. She has that moment where she's like, she like takes a beat, and then she's like, I am not insecure. That's a joke. And it's just really funny. Um, but I, I think there's a, just an emotional aspect of the film that comes through that I don't think would have come across if a man had directed it. Because I don't think he would have understood this friendship between these two girls. Yeah. I I wasn't watching for it, which in hindsight, I wish I maybe had of. But <laughs> I was definitely looking more for just trying to suss out the nature of the relationship between the two girls. Because... I think going through a first watch, if you're not familiar with the film, the big thing that stands out is the kiss, right? Like it, it's in the marketing, so you know it's coming. Yeah, it was and in the trailer, yeah, I think. Yeah, 100%, which <laughs> a man cut that trailer. Yep. So that that's sort of front and center. And I remember when I watched this in 2009, I remember thinking well, that kiss feels really out of place. Like, it seems to come out of nowhere, and mm -hmm. it doesn't make sense for these characters. And now re-watching it, looking for it, I realized that that was an example of me 100% like pulling the blinds over my eyes because it's there in the very first scene. Like, when you're introduced to these characters, mm -hmm. not in the mental institution piece, but when yep. Needy is watching Jennifer twirl the flag in the cheerleading costume. yes. It's little moments, like and because we both watched the extended cut. I actually the commentary was on the theatrical cut, so I got to kind of listen to some of um the differences. But I mean, and they're minor differences. But the like, uh, there are little shots or extended shots of Needy where the extended cut really frames the film a lot more from Needy's perspective. So I'm wondering if if you watch the theatrical cut, if maybe you'll think it's not quite as successful at getting the point across. Mm, I'm. I think the the beats are still there. It's always a little bit more meaningful when you're getting that extra second or two from a particular character's point of view. But right. like I remember from that first watch, like in my mind, going back to 2009, I'm like, oh, yeah, no, like 
there's a like a character literally leans over to Needy and says, "You're totally lesing on her right now." Lesbi gay, you're lesbi gay. And and you're meant you're meant to laugh because you're like, this girl's like out of you know she's out of line. Like, what is she thinking? Girls, these girls are just friends. And then you're like, oh no, wait, it like it just becomes more and more obvious as you watch the film. Needy does want a relationship with Jennifer. That's why she you know, gets frustrated when they're at the low shoulder concert and yeah. she thinks that they're having this moment during that high point of the song. And then she realizes Jennifer isn't looking back at her with that sweet, I love you smile. She's looking at stupid Nicholas. <laughs> Nikolai. Nikolai. Um, Sorry. But no, but they, yeah, you're fine. And they hold hands. And like, yeah, there, there's a, in the beginning, yeah, like you said, when Jennifer's doing the cheerleading, there's like this loving adoration look that Needy gives to Jennifer. And then when they're at the concert and Jennifer holds her hand and then she looks at her, but like Jennifer's not looking at her. She's looking at the band, but she's clearly looking with love, not mm-hmm. friendship. I mean, obviously it's friendship, but like, you know, it, it, it's a very like romantic look and it's telegraphed throughout the entire movie. I think if you don't want to admit it, you can overlook it and be like, no, she's just living in the moment with a friend of hers. No right. cell phone in sight. But if, if you're actually watching the movie and you're paying attention to these kinds of things, it's it's really undeniable. I mean, the the question that I have on the rewatch is actually whether or not Jennifer does feel something back. Yeah. Well, and, then, and so when you go back to that kissing scene and just kind of – I'll actually credit someone here. So I found an article on Vox uh, written by Constance Grady. And um, she wrote a little bit about the sex scene. And so I'll just kind of read what it says. It just says, uh, Jennifer's seductions and murders are too campy to read as really sexy. And the much-hyped kiss between Jennifer and Needy is less steamy girl-on-girl action served to the male gaze on a platter than it is an awkward, confused act of manipulation between two girls bound together equally by affection and ego-driven codependence. And that codependence mm. is something that definitely plays throughout the movie. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's... The rivalry between the girls is what drives the narrative, but it's a rivalry that also stems from repressed romantic interest. And the question is whether or not Jennifer simply knows it and as a malevolent succubus creature is preying on the feelings that she knows Needy has for her. So she's like, cool, I can manipulate this girl into doing what I want. Or is it that she actually does have a genuine affection for Needy as well, but she doesn't act on it. And that's why she eats men instead of eating her best friend slash girlfriend. Well, until she states that she goes both ways, which was also a line that was used prominently in the trailer. Yeah. For confusing purposes. <laughs> yeah. And actually there's one line when, when Jennifer is seducing Chip and she's mid makeout says, say I'm better than needy. That, that's one of my favorite moments for Jennifer in that entire movie. But it, cause it shows like how, even though she's, I mean, Amanda Seyfried is gorgeous. Like she's very pretty, but she's, you know. Yeah. She's uglied up. <laughs> yes. She's uglied up for Hollywood. She's got glasses. Um. <laughs> She didn't get a ponytail, though. (laughs) She should have had a ponytail. But, you know, Megan Fox is the gorgeous girl in school, and she still feels like she needs to be better than Needy. Which, Mm -hmm. it makes me wonder about the friendships that Diablo Cody has had. Because she very much made this movie about about female rivalry and, like, toxic friendships. So I wonder Mm -hmm. if she pulled from her real life. I mean, I'm sure she did. But to write this, these two girls. Yeah. I, I haven't heard her comment on it. I think she said, I, so I was listening, I did two pieces of research for this. Uh, uh, one was I listened to 
the Switchblade Sisters podcast with April Wolf, and she had a conversation about this movie with Isa Maze, the writer of Cam. Oh. Uh, which is, P.S., a fucking great, like, 55 minutes if you want to learn a lot about both this movie but also about Cam. Mm -hmm. It's just a really, really good conversation. But April Wolf did a bunch of pull quotes from various interviews and stuff, and she apparently did. Diablo Cody said that she had a great high school experience. She had lots of friends. She didn't have a lot of issues. Yeah. So I'm sure she's probably still drawing on the idea of female rivalries and high school being that tempestuous environment. And then the other piece that I'll give a quick shout out to just because I, it helped me to process what I was thinking I was seeing on the rewatch. Mm -hmm. uh, my friend, my other writing partner, Valeska Griffiths wrote a really great piece called In Defense of That Kiss about this specific movie. And it's in Grimm Magazine issue number two. And she goes through like essentially what it's like to see the queerness come through where other people don't. And she has a number of different pieces where she's like this scene, this scene, this scene. So I would recommend people check out both of those because they're great pieces. Yeah, it's definitely interesting. I mean, it's from that same Vox article, that there was a quote from Cody, and it, it's not like super, I guess, in-depth is what you would say, but uh, she basically just says that the movie is a commentary on girl-on-girl -girl hatred, sexuality, the death of innocence, and also politics in the way the town responds to the tragedies of the bloody deaths of several young men. <laughs> Any person who dares to respond in, in an unconventional way is branded a traitor. It's also just about fun. I wanted to write a really entertaining popcorn movie. On that level, I think she succeeds, and I actually do think that the, the, um, the satire of small-town life is covered pretty well in the film. Yeah, particularly, you know, the the escalating heights that we see as the male bodies pile up and... You know, we've we've got to protect our our boys, but it's just so funny, right? Because even that gets feminized, like how Chip gets a can of like lady pepper spray, yes, <laughs> to protect himself with, given to him by his mother Cynthia Stevenson, who is like her and Amy Sedaris are both criminally underused in this movie, which I I kind of appreciate because it's really not about other people but at the same time every time they pop up you're like they're doing such great stuff in here i mean every time they pop up each once except oh actually no the uh the extended cut fixes one problem i have with the theatrical cut after needy realizes that jennifer's going after chip at the dance in the theatrical cut it just cuts to her like finding the corsage in the woods and going to the pool and i was always like how the fuck did she know how did she find that like what how is that even possible in the extended cut, and you'll remember this, she goes to Chip's house, and his mm -hmm. mom is like, oh, he's at the dance. Um, he always cuts through the park. And that's why she goes to the park, finds the corsage, and goes to the pool. Tiny thing, but like it always bothered me in the theatrical cut. Yeah, it's always weird when you see extended editions or director's cuts, and they have little moments where you can tell that they cut it for timing um, mm -hmm. or for pacing. And you're like, oh, okay, but that... That scene does have genuine value, even if it's just something along the lines of clarifying a little plot point. Also, too, so the un it's called the unrated cut, but there's nothing in the unrated cut that is more racy or, you know, naughty or whatever. Kusama refers to it as her extended cut, like the director's cut, basically, because it's her preferred filming of the movie. But that doesn't sell Blu-rays. <laughs> uh, what you want is the unrated cut with the word unrated scrawled in blood on Jennifer's stomach. It's honestly just more failed or um, misleading marketing. <laughs> Which, I mean, well, you're absolutely right. And I wonder, if, had the movie been made today, if it, A, would have been marketed differently, and even if it wasn't, would it have been more successful today? 
or maybe it wouldn't because it, it's a weird movie and it's not something that I, I could see like mainstream audiences really latching onto. Yeah, I to be honest, I don't think I don't think it was ever going to be a big hit. Um, mm-hmm. It is a little too weird. It's not it's not giving you all of those things that a safe horror film would give you. Like I think not to tune my own horn, but back in the day when I went to it, <laughs> I think thinking that the boys were going to be the way the film is sold, it doesn't make you think that it's going to be Jennifer versus needy. It makes you think that it's going to be like a lot more action packed that they're going to yep. get vengeance on what happened. Like it's going to be, yeah. And instead, Instead, you know, there's a weird wormhole and there's people levitating and like psychic connections and all these weird things that you're just thinking, oh, these these are weird quirks that I think would have been flattened out or they would have been completely eliminated in a more conventional film. Do you think that the um, the tonal switches work in the movie or at least maybe work more now than you thought they did back in 2009? I do. For me, the the biggest problem to the film, and maybe I'll just ask your encyclopedic uh, knowledge on the differences between the two yeah. editions. For me, the stuff in the insane asylum at the beginning, I'm pretty sure it's in both editions, but slightly longer in the extended, unrated director's cut. Um, basically, my argument is just I I don't like it as a framing device. I think it's unnecessary. Mm-hmm. I think the movie could have actually just begun with the two of them being like, hey, shit went bad in this town. Here's the story. As opposed to, you know, I'm needy. I've got superpowers. They call me kicker. I'm taking out this guard and getting locked in solitary. And you're just like, like, to me, it doesn't add anything. And I hate it when framing devices think that that makes the story more intriguing. You're like, I've already bought my ticket. I'm already sitting down to watch this fucking movie. Like, you don't need to tell me the end at the very beginning. And I... I sound a little more angry than usual because I literally just watched a bunch of movies that do this. (laughs) And one of them was like, well, one of them was Bird Box with fucking Sandra Bullock, who I love. And that movie sucks. I'm sorry. It's just not good. Uh, I read a lot of like conflicting opinions, but yeah, I haven't watched it yet. It, It uses a similar framing device that literally tells you massive plot spoilers about the fate of all the other characters in the film and you're just like now i'm supposed to care about all these other people like and it's two hours and four minutes you're like this is a lot of my time yeah to waste on characters that don't make it well so the the difference in the extended and theatrical so basically the extended cut it starts with the insane asylum and uh you know she does the k-i-c-k-e-r i'm a kicker she kicks the nurse blah 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 shut the fuck up and then it cuts to the tracking shot to Jennifer's house and it, the, the credits go. And it's, you know, you see Jennifer looking at, uh, Needy looking at Jennifer through the window. And then, you know, Needy voices over and then it flashes back. In the theatrical cut, the tracking shot is actually the first part of the movie. And mm. it, it shows Needy looking at Jennifer and the voiceover is different. And she says, you know, hell is a teenage girl. And then it cuts to her in the asylum. See, I would have kept that and just not had the asylum bit. Would have just like gone back. Well, so here's the interesting part, though. So in the script, the original opening is still the tracking shot in Jennifer's house, but it literally shows the entire climactic battle scene, and you see Jennifer die. So you know oh. from the get-go that Needy kills Jennifer, and then it and then it flashes back and it shows you how they got there. Well, that doesn't work either. <laughs> I know, and that was that. Yeah, that was Cody's script, and Kusama even says like I, I think that 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 works a little bit better. Not 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 Diablo Cody's 
version, but like the way they filmed it. So at least either of the two versions you watch, they're better than the scripted opening. <laughs> Generally, you don't begin with your climax. It's kind of screenwriting 101. Yeah, no, I totally get that. And I, I agree. And but I don't mind the insane asylum stuff, but I, I understand your frustration with it. I, I understand the criticisms that are like, like, it's not scary enough and it's not funny enough because it is kind of trying to do a lot of those things at once. And, you know, going from Jennifer mauling that guy in the woods to something more comedic than to Kyle Gallner's death scene, which is pretty... Well, you know, there's humor in that scene in the build-up to his death, but then the actual death scene is um really kind of disturbing, which, mm -hmm. total side note, though, so, you know, because the death scene isn't really shown, it's shown with a shadow on the wall. Yeah. That waist, I thought it was CGI, Uh, that waist on her so is like, comically tiny. That's really her shadow. <laughs> that is really her waist in that shadow, and it's really, like, I was shocked. <laughs> well, you know that part of the preparation for this film was that they asked megan fox to lose 15 pounds right are you fucking kidding me no i didn't know that yeah like Ugh. and again at the time i was like oh she's like you know hollywood hot watching it this time when she first walks down the school hallway in her like pink jumper that like is revealing her her uh -huh. belly and the low-waisted jeans yeah you can see her her hip bones and it's mm -hmm gross like she looks emaciated in this movie and that's actually one of the first things they shot because kusama uh, commentary very insightful by the way um but kusama said like she knew the studio would be happy with a shot of a slow-mo megan fox walking down a hallway looking like a pink tube of lipstick but uh well and also i know it's not a big deal but like the scenes where jennifer is hungry and you know she's drab again mm -hmm. by hollywood standards i, I because <laughs> she's not ugly like she she just looks like a normal person like with slightly greasy like she didn't take a shower that morning that's all she looks like <laughs> i think the makeup on her face is like they they hollow out her face a little bit more so she does look a little more emaciated but you're right yeah it's 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 not like she has clumps of hair falling out or something like she's not losing teeth or or fingernails or anything like too perturbing <laughs> Well, and I'm not saying, oh, it's so brave of Megan Fox to, like, let them shoot her like this. But I appreciate that for, for an actress who is perceived as being a vapid, conceited person. It always makes me happy when, like, I can see, like, when they do something like that. Especially the scene when she's getting ready for the prom and she's, you know, hungry. And she's wiping all that foundation on her face. And it's... Mm -hmm. It's not pretty. No. Um, oh, and I also love how she has just a picture of herself on her desk. <laughs> I noticed that too. <laughs> I love it when people have pictures of themselves in movies. But it's little like things like that that really inform you of the character. And I, I again, I don't think that those details would have been there had a man directed it. I, I'm backtracking here. I'm just like, it's just something to think about. Yeah, I mean, I... <laughs> I'm not disagreeing with you. It's just I'm more at a loss of things to contribute to that. But. Yeah. Well, so on the man subject, then, what do you think about the portrayal of the men in this movie? It's interesting because I remembered thinking that the men were all a lot stupider than they are. They are. <laughs> um, and a couple of them fully are. I mean, like Chris Pratt. boy, Chris Pratt is pretty fucking stupid. I think, oh, and I don't remember this, but he has a line where he like, he calls the Adam Brody's band a bunch of fagos. Yeah. I did not remember that. <laughs> yeah. I, I remembered him doing some color commentary about boys from the city, which is always interesting. Yeah. The, this idea that, you know, city guys are a certain way and, 
small town folk or a certain other way. It's very like Hallmark Christmas movie to me, but yeah, I mean, it's a little on the nose and like, it's obviously, you know, Cody's trying to make a satirical statement there and it's a little heavy handed sometimes where it's like, okay, come on, like, let's go. Yeah. I, I actually appreciate it coming more from the Adam Brody Nikolai character because he's very knowing in that way. Like he thinks that they're preying on the, the idiocy of a small town by going to, find their virgin sacrifice and just the fact that they can say like oh we're we're an emerging band and that'll get us girls that'll get us people to come out and i will say (laughs) now i'm backtracking Uh yay this podcast so organized um i was so impressed with how kusama shot the um the fire sequence when when the roadhouse essentially goes up in flames. And I know that it's, I know that there's a few more shots of like explosions and like the camera lingers on some of the gore a little bit more in the extended cut, but yeah. it just works. Like it's a really good action sequence and it seems to come out of nowhere because it's really early in the film and you're not expecting the bar to go up in flames just because the band is playing. Like it really sets a good tone that something weird and off is happening with this band and the fact that jennifer's in a trance and it just sells like it's a really good early setup it was funny so when i was watching this oh this reminds me of carrie because amanda seyfried watches the fire start and she's like kind of watching it like build its way across the beam up top which is Mm -hmm. just like amy irving watching the rope leading to the bucket of blood and it's shot very similarly watching the commentary Kusama didn't mention that, but she did say there's a shot where um, Amanda Seyfried is at the pinball machine, which, by the way, is called Fire. Um, <laughs> it's just called Fire. <laughs> and, Rim shot. <laughs> yes. And it's uh, it's basically her and the side, and then you can – it's Adam Brody talking to his bandmate behind her. There, there's kind of a – what do they say? It's, it's a split diopter shot, and she said she was specifically uh, homaging De Palma with that shot. So – I guess she didn't realize she was homaging Carrie with the fire shot, but I don't know. Either way. Um, but yeah, again, it nice to know that, you know, Kusama like knows her film. Oh yeah. She's pretty savvy from all the interviews and things and all of the movies I've seen of her. She's like on her game. She knows her shit. Yeah. I mean, even Eon Flux, which is not like probably her weakest film, uh, mm-hmm. is at least visually interesting. And, Okay, I'm moving forward again, and it's we're going to talk about the boys, but I'm going to talk about a boy that maybe, like, you wouldn't think to talk about. Ahmed, the foreign exchange student. It's <laughs> <laughs> an interesting addition. I know. Not a lot to talk about, but and I, I didn't pick up on this. I just thought it was, uh, personally, I thought it was kind of an offensive thing, like a portrayal of like that, because he seems so, like, he dies immediately. Mm-hmm. Um, but Cody was attempting to satirize american xenophobia in the scene when jennifer finds him and kills him the line she has where she's like does your host family know you're alive does anybody know you're alive that that was supposed to be a commentation on xenophobia like that we don't notice those people or i guess we don't care about those people well it does make sense too because she obviously pukes up the the raw meat or the the food that she finds in Needy's fridge. But then she shows up the next day and she's looking Daisy fresh. And we learn later in the film that only yeah. happens when she eats a boy. So that, that to me was another thing where I was like, Oh, did I just miss that entirely the first go around? So clearly I'm also xenophobic. Oh yeah, for sure. I just, I love that Boston market when she's eating that chicken. And <laughs> Amanda Cypher is just like, um, my mom bought that from Boston market and we're not supposed to eat it. <laughs> 
<laughs> and oh, and then there's that cutaway when like she sees Jennifer the next day at school and it cuts away to her like scrubbing the vomit on the ground. <laughs> yeah, so ineffectually. I'm like, girl, you need a mop and a bucket. You're not gonna do that with a sponge. <laughs> it's so funny though. Like, and she's just like sobbing as she's like scrubbing up this black goo. <laughs> okay, well let's let's talk about the jokes as we talk about the boys, because I feel like a lot of the humor is tied to maybe I'll backtrack and say the the boys are pretty stupid the first boy that she kills in the woods is very it's so conventional like horror movie kind of girl is dangerous boy is stupid he the guy looked like um ram from heathers like one of those like jocks that they kill in the woods he reminded me just of like one of those and maybe that was intentional but um that's exactly what that reminded me of that's hilarious because I actually had that same thought when I was watching it. Just this idea that she takes a boy into the woods and he's supposed to be upset and she's just like, I'm just going to strip you naked and then I'm just going to murder you like an idiot. Yeah, it's, and, and I, I think that seems pretty cool. I mean, like, I like the animals and shit. Um, that's another weird touch where you're just like, what? And it never pays off. Like, no, it's not like there's animals that show up at all the other crime scenes, right? But well, it never comes back. Like, there's never animals that come to her again as she's killing people. Maybe it's just when she's in the woods. So, okay. So yeah, I mean, we have that douchebag. We have, I mean, sorry, he, he's actually a very nice person, I'm sure. <laughs> You've got Chris Pratt, who has his one scene and then dies. And uh, he did take Jennifer's anal virginity, we find out. That's and... a pretty funny line. <laughs> She's oh. like, I had to sit on a bag of peas the next day. <laughs> well, and I don't think Chip is dumb, though. I-, I think Chip is like a nice, likable person. He's just inconsequential, I guess, is how I would put it. Well, okay, so this is interesting. So my husband, Brian, has a tendency to watch movies over his shoulder. So he has a computer that faces away from the TV. So he'll, I'll be watching things and then he'll provide weird commentary. (laughs) Weird (laughs) commentary where you're like, you're not even watching this. You don't know what's happening. (laughs) So when the whole drama goes down where Jennifer essentially lies and says that Needy had a relationship with Kyle Gellner's character, mm-hmm. who's another C, is Clint or Cliff or Colin. Colin. She's like, God damn it, Diablo Cody, like name your boys different names. <laughs> so when when Jennifer says to that Needy had a relationship with Colin, uh, and Chip just believes it, Brian turns around. He was like, "Wait, why is this? Why is this guy such an asshole? Like, why is he believing her? And why is he now <laughs> making out with her if he's heartbroken? Like, it doesn't make sense. Even if he does put a stop to it when he gets to the pool, it's like, no, dude, that's a shit thing to do. Like, why does he just automatically distrust his girlfriend? Well, so are you agreeing with that, or are you like, are you are you understanding Chip's perspective?" No, I I think it's a weird kind of out of character moment for him, considering that throughout the entire rest of the movie, as you suggested, he's kind of inconsequential and like, he's just not like, he's not dumb. He's I will I will defend him on a certain level. So he he cares about needy. And I, I love the touch when he gets her that ribbed condom for her pleasure. Because like, like, like those do anything, apparently. And when he asks her when she's having her psychic freak out, because Jennifer's killing Colin, if he's, he's like, Am I too big? Well, oh, no, that's that's great. Also was put in the trailer, which I hate that. But th- when she's, like, freaking out, she's, like, moaning. But he, it's moans of, like, fear. And he thinks that it's him pleasuring her. And uh, this is a typical, like, teenage boy thing. Also, did not 
I read that as their first time. Uh, it's not confirmed in the commentary when uh, Kusama was like, yeah, everyone reads that as their, like, her losing her virginity, but that's not it. Like, they've clearly had sex before. And I'm like, it, I didn't get that. <laughs> it does seem like it, but he actually has a line where he says, like, I went and I picked up more condoms. And she's like, cool. Oh, uh, yeah, that's true. It's a very, like, it's a blink and you miss it kind of thing, though. Yeah. But, so what I'll say about him believing Jennifer is, okay, they, they've clearly, like, had a very positive relationship like they they get along they always get it like they they agree before jennifer tries to seduce him though is when like she won't go to the dance and i think he's picking up on maybe their relationship because she does frequently prioritize jennifer over chip even in the first scene when they go to the band and he kind of like has that kind of like why are you going out with jennifer like like, hang out with me blah 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 yeah he he's doing that sort of defensive joke comment thing where you're like Oh, I don't actually mean this, but, like, hey, are you in love with your best friend? <laughs> yes. And so, on a level, I mean, granted, is it stupid? Yes. Is he, should he be smarter? Yes. But I'm coming at this from, like, an 18-year-old's perspective who's had a pretty great, I'm saying maybe her not going to the dance with him is, like, the first, like, thing they had where, like, it wasn't perfect. And that could affect an 18-year-old who's also, again, maybe in the, under the presumption that his girlfriend has feelings for this girl and kind of destroy his I don't want to say inhibitions but like just just not make him act in a way that wouldn't be quote unquote normal for for his behavior yeah I'll accept it I I think it's just because throughout the rest of the film he's presented as a bit more smart savvy kind of grounded than the rest of the boys who all seem essentially stupid but yeah. At the same time, I think it's also repeatedly communicated that Jennifer does have a power over boys. Like, there's never any indication that Colin should like Jennifer, and then he just randomly asks her out. Oh, and that's something that I... So, we can just move on to Colin for a bit. Um, Do it. I, I love... So, I like Colin Golner a lot. I, I've watched him since um, Veronica Mars. Uh, yeah, same. I, I love that goth character in the movie. I'm just like, okay, like, I, I knew people like that. But he does, like, a lot of, like, like, little nuances. And there is an extra shot in the unrated version, or, sorry, the extended cut, where, um, he, like, kind of, like, does a, he says something either to Needy or Jennifer and, like, kind of gets shot down. And, like, in the theatrical cut, it's not there, but in the extended cut, he does, like, a little, like, look back and kind of, like, sulks his head. It's just a little thing, but it's, it's important. But it's I, cute. I love him going to that damn house and it's, there is clearly something amiss. <laughs> yeah. It's like, Hmm, no one lives on this block. These houses are condemned. Yeah. But I think I'm going to get laid. <laughs> exactly. And so, but that's the thing, like, he's, a, he's a likable character, but he's so stupid because he's mesmerized by, he's going to get to fuck the hot girl in school. And yeah. it's just sad. It's honestly, him dying is like kind of upsetting. And then when, Oh, a nice touch is when she's spooning the blood out of his stomach and is like yeah, slurping it down. I like, oh, again, it's not a gory movie, but that bit is like really gross. Whereas I will highlight a comedy bit that always makes me laugh, which is that when he's looking at her text for directions, you can see that she misspelled your. Oh, I never caught that. <laughs> I'm just like, ah, it's such a teen thing where it's like, you don't know punctuation. Oh, that's see, and that's the thing. Like, there's so many subtle nuances, like little details and tidbits. That uh, I mean, again, this isn't like hereditary. We're talking about where there's like a bunch of hidden meaning in this film, but just little character things that are, are interesting. Tis true. Tis true. 
Okay, so let's talk about Jennifer's death. This that is the scene where that probably connects with this Me Too movement, though, because when she's like, so when they're at the when the the place is burning down, and he's like, Adam Brody walks up and goes, "Hey, y'all, we should go somewhere familiar, um, that y'all are comfortable, like my van. <laughs> it's like this rape van, rape van eighty <laughs> nine. Yeah, exactly. And then when the flashback happens, and like. She says something, and he and he goes, "You don't have to talk if you don't want to." Yeah, she asks, "Where are we going?" And he's like, "You don't have to talk." Yes, and it's oh. so, it's creepy. And, and then and then she goes, "Are you guys rapists?" And then he just goes, oh, "I hate girls." I'm like, "Well, also, there's like total like homosexuality like in their thing because these bandmates are clearly in love with each other." Um, but it might just be a narcissism <laughs> thing and not like a gay thing. But they, it definitely plays as like a big like, and when again they're they're asking her if she's a virgin, and she's like. Yeah, I'm a virgin. To her, virginity is like something that's not special and like why she wouldn't want to, like why someone would want to kill her. But if she was experienced and they, they would want her, which is the opposite, but it kind of shows with her what she, how much she prides sexual experience over being a virgin, which isn't something you see really in like a main character in a horror movie. Uh, or sorry, hmm. in a movie, in a movie, period. Which I actually interpreted that as almost like a savvy commentary on the fact that in horror movies, you don't kill the virgin. Well, no, you do. You sacrifice a virgin. Like, that's always like a thing with cults. Yeah, but if you look at this as a slasher film, then yeah. you don't you don't kill the virgin because the virgin always lives. That's true. Okay, that I'll give you that. But yeah, and so anyway, so her actual death sequence, though, is so scary. I, I think it might be this... Like, Again, it's not like jumpy scary. It's like what you would think, but it's really, really disturbing because he, you know, she's begging for her life and they're just fucking around with her. And then he goes to stab her and then stops. And then they start breaking into song with, uh, I don't know what the song's name is, but it's that eight, six, seven, five, three, oh, nine. And it, and they, and then they sing it as they repeatedly stab her to death. Even the fact that they pause, like you think he's going to stab her. And then it's like, nope. We're just going to give it an extra beat before we, like, plunge the knife in. Yeah. And there, there is a filmmaking effect that I don't like. Um, it's When they're stabbing her, it's like this kind of blur effect. I don't like that in movies. I've never liked it. I've never seen it used well. So I don't like that aspect of it. But in general, like, the scene is really creepy. Yeah, I almost would have preferred it. If, I mean, it would have been hard to do because we're talking moonlight and no backdrop. Mm-hmm. But it w- almost would have been better to have seen it in a kind of silhouette. So it could have mirrored oh, the way that yeah. she kills uh colin later but oh yeah, yeah that would have been cool so yeah anyway that, that's like again rape van rapist creepy bandmates like it's it's really really gross so the pool scene uh which has one of the most beautiful sets in the entire movie it's very odd though i i, <laughs> I remember liking it and then being like why is there just this overgrown pool <laughs> i i thought the exact i think it every time and i'm like you know what whatever i'll just well and the shot oh yeah you just go with it the shot where needy is running to the pool house it's kind of like a wide shot um it looks like a backdrop like she's running towards a backdrop of where this pool house is oh it 100 percent does yeah it mm-hmm. looks like she's running towards a painting yes uh, yes and i i think that's intentional and not like a budgetary issue hmm. i don't know i mean i'm giving the movie the benefit of the doubt but it could very well just be a budgetary issue well even like her running in slow-mo her her ugly dress looks surprisingly decent when she's in motion as opposed to looking oh. like the drew barrymore never been kissed outfit that it does when she's sitting still. yes yes oh my god that's exactly what it looks like <laughs> it looks like her dress from never been kissed and she gets eggs thrown on her josie um, gross age oh god that's perfect p.s that dress in jenner's body in the script was described to as looking like afterbirth 
God. <laughs> not not wrong. So yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I don't understand why there's this like overgrown pool there, and it's disgusting looking. Uh, but it's it's good. It's a really pretty set. I feel like it should be like Poison Ivy's home. But uh, but yeah. So also, I think. I think it's probably the best sequence of the movie because I really do like the barbs that they trade back and forth, which the biggest laugh for me, by the way, is she can fly. She's just hovering. It's not that impressive. I <laughs> I love that. Even that when when Jennifer trash talks Needy's comeback, <laughs> she's like, uh, it's a juvenile. <laughs> is that the best you got? No, th- that to me is where the comedy and the horror mixes best and i remember being shocked both times i've watched it that chip actually dies like i legitimately was like she's gonna save him this is the big battle and instead it's like no man he's a goner like you don't get bit on the neck and survive like he just bleeds out (laughs) that whole sequence again is kind of reversal of the standard trope you know it's this girl going to her man's rescue he he's the damsel in distress but she doesn't save him. It's just because it's not about him. Like it's never been about Chip or or Needy's relationship with Chip. And it's well, and all to about me, it's a lot more realistic too. Like she, she's not superhuman. Like no, she goes in there. She has no plan. She has no weapon. She just like jumps on Jennifer and thinks she's gonna save the day. And it's like, no, this movie is keeping it real. Like people die in this movie. They <laughs> do not get away from Jennifer. The only reason that Needy ends up killing Jennifer mm-hmm. is because. I would argue Jennifer allows her to because she realizes this is my best friend and I don't want to be this way. And she allows her to like stab her. I don't read it like that. (laughs) Oh, also really funny line, which I I don't think it played well for me the first time I saw it, but I like it now is, um, do you know what this is for? It's for cutting boxes. I just think it's really (laughs) funny (laughs) because it's a box cutter. Well, Crafts out Jennifer. Yeah. Yes. Uh, uh, That's a good callback too. But uh, no, I don't read it really as she lets it happen. I read it. So when she rips off the BFF necklace and like that's when like they stop, like she lets go and she falls onto the bed. I just read that as, oh shit, like, it's like, if you're in a like real, friendship uh, over, <laughs> yeah. Like, like, I don't think she ever really believed that like, that needy would in the friendship because she she had the power in her mind. And so when needy does that, it's like, oh my god! Like if you're in a, a relationship like that, like you know, you tease each other, you push like each other, and oh, like in the beginning when they literally push each other and they have to one up each other, and like Jennifer like shoves her into the door really hard. That by the way was the actress's idea. That wasn't in the script. Um, oh, interesting. But it's like, it, to me, the ending of that movie, like when she pulls the necklace off, that is like, oh, Jennifer realizes I pushed too far. I destroyed this friendship. I don't necessarily read it as oh, I'm giving up, but it's more of a moment of shock for her. And that's why she lets her guard down, um, mm. which is something she hasn't done probably at all in her life ever. I mean, arguably, she's also super weak at this point and <laughs> well, I mean, been, like, she... cutting her up. But Oh, and oh, the, that detail of like the stains on her teeth when she's chewing on her hair. I, lo- I actually really like that. Oh, that's yeah. good. Some That's good makeup. Yeah. I mean, it, again, technical aspects of this movie are pretty good. But yeah, and that it's a borderline silly sequence, like with them floating around in the air like that. But it works because I think the actresses make it believable. And it looks it looks appropriately physical. Uh, one yeah. of the things that comes up in that Switchblade Sisters piece, apparently that was like a 12 to 13 hour day where they were harnessed together. Well, 
I watched the gag reel, and the gag reel becomes literally just like behind the scenes shots about halfway through it. I, I was really confused, but a lot of it is like <laughs> a lot of them is in like spinning around in the air over that bed, and I was like, Jesus, that looks uncomfortable. It does not look fun to shoot. But maybe it was. Who knows? No, apparently it was not fun. <laughs> like, uh, <laughs> apparently M- Megan Fox, uh, they both ended up with like tons of bruising. Like Megan Fox had bruises all over her, or maybe it was Amanda had bruises like all over her uh, her abdomen and mm-hmm. her like chest. It did not sound enjoyable at all. Yeah. <laughs> That's why I'm like, oh, movie making, not not magical. No, not I frequently watch some things. I, what always, I always want to get killed in a horror movie. Like I want someone to like put me in their horror movie and kill me. But I hate being sticky. And I feel like touching all that corn syrup or fake blood would really make me uncomfortable, especially if you had to sit there for like hours on hours, like covered in the shit. This is true. And please give me credit for not making a joke at your expense about being covered in sticky. <laughs> I'll give it to you. I mean, I just made it, but sure. Yeah, well, whatever. <laughs> then how do you feel about just the ending of the movie? So, you know, you have the death scene, which, oh, actually, I love that Jennifer's mom comes in. Because you don't, the parents are such. They're not, non-factors. They're non-factors, which is something I always think about in horror movies. And like, my mom was, like, pretty on my ass in high school a lot. It's like, is this a thing where, like, parents just don't, maybe it is, I don't know. But they just don't care. Like, where are these parents? But I love that she just comes in and it's like, oh, like, who are you, <laughs> lady? <laughs> Yeah, we've never met her before. We obviously know that it's her mom, but you're just like, oh, oops. Yeah. That to me felt a little artificially inserted to make sure that we knew that that's why Needy ended up in the asylum. Like, oh, because she was literally caught in the act of killing Jennifer, but Mm -hmm. it works. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, we don't need it, but I think it's good to know that Jennifer has a mom. (laughs) Um, So how do you feel about the ending of the movie then? So it goes back to the asylum, and then she breaks out because she has demon powers now, which... I was kind of like, so that's my thing. Why did she wait to get out of this place, like, with her powers? She had to tell us her story, (laughs) Dreams. It doesn't make any sense. It makes no sense. It makes no sense. And then she hitchhikes with Lance Henriksen. Which I, again, completely forgot. And I was like, oh, hey. I I had forgotten about that, too. Totally, it's uncredited. It doesn't make, again, why is he in this movie? I don't know. He just got back from burying Pumpkinhead. Yeah. True. And then he drives away, and there's a sign that pans to a low shoulder sign, which I thought was a pretty funny visual cue. It's on the nose, but not unamusing. But imagine had it ended there. Like, and and you didn't have the credit sequence where she goes to murder all the band. I mean, she says it, though. She says that they're playing their last show. So you, you know it, but I like it. I like the still images playing over the end credits. I do think it gives... Not only a nice bit of closure, but it's a it's a good visual element to introduce it. It feels different than the rest of the film, but I like particularly ending with the dagger stuck in Nicholas' uh, gut. Yeah, you mean his his penis returned to him, his phallic weapon, exactly. But also, like he's surrounded by what like gummy bears or candies and stuff. Like I think it's so. that beautiful contrast between the juvenile teenage girl with the ceremonial sacrificial murder stuff. Uh, also, maybe too on the nose, but it's also scored to low shoulders cover of blondies in the flesh. But I'm bumping. Yeah, exactly. Um, and also speaking of contrast, I love the font um, used during the title card and then the closing credits. It's like that pink cursive. Again, not unlike Heather's. I keep coming back to Heather's. <laughs> well, actually, it's reminiscent of Ghost Ship, too. The opening of Ghost Ship, it's like the, the title card is like this really pretty pink cursive. And then like everyone gets cut in half. Yeah. 
And also, a comparison to Ghost Ship is something I never thought we'd be making <laughs> in this podcast. Not that I don't dislike that movie. Well, actually, I don't like that movie apart from the opening sequence. It's not good, but it's a fun one. I have a soft spot for all those Dark Castle movies. It's like I grew up on them, especially 13 Ghosts, but, you know, we're not talking about that. Anyway, okay, well, um, do you have any closing comments on Jennifer's body or anything, any pressing things you're wanting to discuss? Well, it depends. Do you want, do you want to play the game? <laughs> Oh, fuck, you have a game for me? Another I always one? have a game for you. I, well, I don't know. You said that. Okay, yeah, yeah. I, sorry, I want to play the game. Let's play the game. Okay, so this one is, is the toughest one yet. If okay. you had a band that was going to perform satanic rituals, what would your band's name be? Oh, shit. Um, You're from Austin, so you should know plenty of bands. I know, but I don't do music, dude. I So there's four quarters of pop culture. It's movies, TV, video games, and music. And I hit all of them except for music. My husband does all of them except for video games. So it's like we're like a perfect fit. So you're a trivial trivial pursuit loser in the music category. Oh, yeah. I don't know anything. Um, Unless it's like show tunes or share or ABBA. So gay. Yeah, I know. (laughs) I know. I know I fit that stereotype. Uh, But wait, so this is a made-up band name? No, it could be a real one if if you think it's appropriate. I don't know. I'll just make one up. I'll call it like Devil's Cock or something. (laughs) <laughs> well i want to my mind went to jupiter's cock which if you ever watched spartacus um that's a common uh curse word that they use it's true. Um, uh i but, love that show oh it's so fucking good dude and i did not think i was gonna like it at all but it's so good <laughs> uh lucy lawless for life but yeah we'll say devil's cock i don't know i'm not really good at that cool okay i'll accept it <laughs> mine, what about you? mine was jennifer's body oh okay <laughs> not very it's clever, a cheat but, sure. but it i mean if you think about it like it can't you totally see an indie rock man going around being like hey we're jennifer's body oh yeah um yeah that sounds appropriately douchey i also do like the title when you think about it like the the film is really well encapsulated in the title jennifer's body because it's about jennifer but it's really actually all about her body like the film is fixated not on her as a person but about her body well, I, yeah, well, yes, but it, it again misunderstood by the boy-run media to be a titillating. Oh, look at Megan Fox! Oh, mm-hmm. and there's an extra feature on the Blu-ray that's just called "Megan Fox is Hot," and it is a 56-second supercut of all the hottest shots of Megan Fox in the film. Ew. Well, and so, but that's the thing, though. So I'm like, okay, was that that could be read as oh, like you know, it's gratuitous, or it could be read as. Let's give these stupid little boys what they want, and, like, we're making fun of you with this. It's hard to say because DVDs and trailers are made by external people. Like, the the director and the writer are not always consulted in the way that it's sold in that way. So I actually wouldn't be surprised that that was some intern's idea. Like, hey, <laughs> Megan Fox is, like, really hot. That thing where they were originally going to have Megan Fox talking to like manning sex phone lines to what yeah it's in your cheat sheet man oh uh, oh (laughs) i forgot i wrote this like two weeks ago so one of the marketing ideas was for her to do live chats on amateur porn sites oh yeah kusama was like no she is not doing that because do you know what that will do to megan fox like oh yeah she will become so dispirited it was crushing but yeah good for her for looking out for megan fox like that and honestly it seems like they all like got along really well and you know to see the public trash megan fox like that i'm like you know what i bet she's a very nice person and isn't she married to um it's from beverly hills oh brian austin green 
And they have like three kids, and I'm sure she's still super skinny. <laughs> as long as it makes her happy. Yeah, exactly. Cool. Well, I mean, I hope that they all feel good about the fact that the film is essentially being appropriated back by the horror community and people are loving it and defending it. And like, I saw so many think pieces and people talking about how much they love the film now. So super I mean, happy for that. I, I, I hope so too. But you know, I always think about John Carpenter because whenever you like you read an article where someone tells John Carpenter that, Oh, like this movie, that was a flop. I really love. And he's like, great. Where's my money? Like he's so bitter about it. And so I hope that these people aren't like that. <laughs> but yeah, yeah I, I would, I would understandably be bitter about that. Especially like with the way this movie was received by audiences and critics alike. I will say though, because a a little bit less so this movie, but between this movie and the invitation, and having also seen Destroyer at TIFF, um, mm -hmm. I will literally I will go and support Karen Kusama. Like every movie that she makes, I will go and see it now. I, I agree. I, I've never seen Girl Fight, which was her big debut. Like that, and that was a very highly regarded. It's Michelle Rodriguez, and then she got Aeon Flux, and. I can only because there was a six year gap between this and the invitation. And I'm sure it's because she did Eon Flux, critical and commercial flop. Then she did this, critical and commercial flop. I mean, I'm sure she was like, and then she did, she did TV episodes in between. But then to come back with the invitation, it's like, wow, good for you. But the invitation is not like a conventional studio horror, right? Like she, she probably had to toil away and pay her fucking dues. But even yeah. then, I'm willing to bet that, that that movie has a fraction of the budget of even Jennifer's body. Oh yeah. I mean well that's the thing. Like, this movie had a sixteen million dollar budget. I don't I don't really see it Just everywhere. Cheap. Yeah, well but yeah, but like I mean, maybe it went to Megan Fox? I don't know. Like I I I don't really see that money on the screens uh, all all the time. And I haven't seen Destroyer, by the way, but I've heard mixed things, but I do want to see it. I really loved it. Uh, and I would encourage people to check it out when it comes available. Uh, Nicole Kidman is for sure, for sure going to get nominated for an Oscar. But it's, Which is it's great. a really well shot film. The problems that it has are in the script. Okay. No, I, I mean, Kusama has evolved as a director a lot. And, oh, and sorry, I know we're running long, but like a lot of the reviews like that I was reading were like, if they were complimenting Diablo Cody's script, they would say that Karin Kusama's direction was aimless or it was a terrible direct, like terribly directed movie. And I don't <sighs> agree with that at all. No, I fuck like, that. Yeah, no, it was a lot of like jabs at Kusama's directing talent. And it's just like, and I bet you that's because of like Eon Flux just happened. Yeah. That, ugh. Go, go to Rotten Tomatoes and read some of those reviews. It's kind of like, even just the blurbs, it's kind of insulting. <laughs> yeah. Well, Honestly, the the relationship that Hollywood and a lot of critics um, and often like more mainstream critics have with female writers and female directors is absolutely appalling, which, again, is another reason to celebrate this film getting brought back into the limelight, because it's like a personal fuck you to all of these old white men who are like, what oh, is yeah. this high school movie with two girls <laughs> being directed by a woman? What? Written by a woman. What? What's a woman? Yeah, it's... Uh, anyway, <sighs> let's end on that positive note. <laughs> yes. Oh, and I will do my sign-off. Cross out Joe. <laughs> I don't know. Cross out audience. Cross out, cross out horror queers. <laughs> Ouch. Okay. Well, that's fine. Uh, if you don't want to cross me out and you want to follow me on Twitter, you can find me at B Stole My Remote. That's the letter B Stole My Remote. 
And you can find me at at Traced Thurman. That's my first name, last name with a D in the middle. That is D as in dog. Nice. You've been working on that, haven't you? Yeah. Well, D's, uh, it's from my middle name because my middle name is Dennis. Oh, Lloyd. <laughs> and then is our Patreon up and running? So, yeah. If you want to help to support the show, you can visit patreon.com backslash horror queers uh, and... Starting at the $5 level, you can listen to us review a bunch of different new releases. And for January, we're doing two, so they're already in there. Uh, so you can listen to Trace and I talk about Escape Room, as well as the new M. Night Shyamalan film, Glass. So that's patreon.com backslash horrorqueers. The Patreon episodes, it, to my knowledge that we've discussed, aren't going to be like queer theme necessarily. So like, you know, we'll do like more mainstream theatrical horror or, or maybe not even mainstream, just like even VOD stuff and just do like brief episode reviews of them that you can listen to and, you know, get recommendations from two queer guys. It's great. It'll be fun. It's true. Which is the other title of the podcast. Two Queer two Guys. Queer guys. <laughs> two Queer Guys, a podcast and a pizza place. Exactly. With Ryan Reynolds on top. Yes, always. Uh, okay, so what are we? What are we doing next? Where are we going next? We oh, we are. This is the DVD cover that I was talking about last week that uh, I was really excited about. We are going to be discussing Swim Fan, <laughs> Jesus. which is Joe's pick. <laughs> I regret my choice. I haven't watched it yet, but I know you already have. So I'm, uh, I, I'll be watching this tomorrow. <laughs> yes, I'd say come for the speedo shots, but there are very little. Well, if you really want that, you should just go back and reread our our written post on the Covenant because you get a lot more speedo for your for your yes. money in that one. Or the Buffy the Vampire Slayer episode, uh, Fish Boy, I think is what it's called. Is it Fish Boy? I don't Something know. Something like that. Yeah. But it's yeah, you get to see Xander in a speedo, which is great. So yeah, that's it. <laughs> yeah. So swim fan horror queers. See you next week. <laughs> yeah, see you next week. Horror queers yeah. out. Or. <laughs> Cross us off. <laughs> Cross us off. <laughs>